Hello, I'm Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. And welcome to the, our latest installment of the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover Fellows and also friends from outside Hoover to discuss their latest books, writings, columns, articles. Today, we're joined by Barry Strauss. He's our Corliss Page Dean Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Barry is a military historian, and he focuses on ancient Greece and Rome as a classicist. He received his PhD uh, in classics and ancient history at Yale. Uh, many of us know him from his Battle of Salamis, the naval encounter that saved Greece and Western civilization. That was named one of the best books of 2004 by the Washington Post. Barry's also currently, and has been for three decades, the Bryce and Edith Bomar, Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell. His most recent book, and the one we are discussing today, is The War That Made the Roman Empire, Anthony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. I want to, as a side note, point out that uh, I reviewed this book in the realclearpolitics.com. You can get it online on March 15th. And uh, we're going to talk about some different aspects, but there's a, a, a very laudatory review of the great book that's on real clear politics. And I'd also finally note that Barry and I were students in 1977 and 1978, the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, along with another um, Stanford classicist, Josiah Ober. And all three of us, it would just turned out to be happenstance that we were all looking at the status of Athens after the war from cultural, social, economic, and agricultural aspects. So we've known each other a long, long time. Uh, and with that, uh, we'll start. Barry, uh, you've written on the Battle of Salamis, the Trojan War, the Spartacus War, um, and then a, a series of wars in your Masters of Command. And of course, the, the death of Caesar had a lot about the war. Of all of these wars that we see uh, change history, Marathon, Salamis, Carthage, you said, your title suggests that maybe Actium was underappreciated in its historical importance. It really did alter the course of what Rome would become. Um, yes, thanks, Victor, and it's great to be here, and uh, and uh, great to be always great to be with you after all the years we've known each other, as you said. Yes, I do think that um, Actium is underappreciated in its historical importance, um, and in part because. Um, there was a school of thought that, that said, well, it really wasn't much of a battle and everything was determined beforehand. Um, there's some truth to that, but I think that underestimates the campaign, military campaign. And, and But also because uh, the consequences if things had gone the other way at Actium would have been very great. Uh, if Antony and Cleopatra had won the war, um, then the Roman Empire would have looked eastward. And Alexandria would have become a Constantinople centuries before Constantinople. The center, uh, the center of gravity of the empire would have gone eastward, and the empire would have been much more of a Greek-based empire than a Latin-based empire. Um, I think that the Romans would have been much less interested in expanding in northern and western Europe than they, they were, uh, much more interested in expanding in uh uh, Southwestern Asia, so what is now uh, Iraq and maybe even Iran, um, 
and the Roman Empire that would have developed would have been would have looked much more to the east than than it did. So yeah, I think it would have been big difference. And even you hint at times in the book that even modern Europe as we know it, i.e., northwestern Europe, might have been more influenced by Hellenism than agrarian Latin values, maybe even philologically or or constitutionally or in a variety of ways, huh? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think philologically, linguistically, the language we speak might be based more on Greek than on Latin, uh, as English is is based more on Latin than Greek. Uh, And culturally, uh, the religion uh, of the West might have been more akin to orthodoxy uh, than to Latin Christianity. And that would have had big influences on politics as well, of course. Uh, at this point, I wanted to break, get into the book very quickly, but maybe, Barry, for a minute or two, you can remind everybody that's listening that's unacquainted with Actium, just give us who who was there, what was the fight ostensibly in the short term over? Yeah, so this was a, a, a naval battle that capped a campaign uh, that had been going on for six months and a war that had been going on for for a year, but in a way, a war that had been going on for at least 15 years, a decade and a half, uh, a war over the future of the Roman Empire. Um, there were two giants who dominated the Roman Empire and the ruins of the Roman Republic. Um, in the West, uh, we had Octavian, who called himself Caesar. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He was adopted posthumously in Caesar's will after Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March in 44 BC. Uh, And in the East, there was Marcus Antonius, or as we call him, Mark Antony. Uh, He had been one of Caesar's lieutenants, uh, and uh, he was a a military man. And his power uh, in the East came partly from the Roman legions that he commanded and the authority that he had from uh, the Roman Senate, but also from his uh, uh, alliance both uh, in the bedroom and politically uh, with Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. Uh, and the show, and the war was over really who would dominate the, the Roman world uh, because Roman politics had shown again and again that the Roman empire as vast as it was, wasn't big enough to have two men dominating it. It would always go to one. It was, you know, Marius versus Sulla, Caesar versus Pompey. And this was the, uh, the latest um, uh, instant instance of that. Would it be Antony or Octavian who dominated this world? Maybe we should tell everybody, Barry, where Actium is. I think you and I first went there in our lives in 1977, and we had a colleague, uh, Bill Murray, who spent yeah. most of his life on that site, who was a very close friend of yours. That's where, right. Where is Actium? So Actium is in northwestern Greece, um, it's south of a place that many people will have heard from, uh, from tour- heard of from tourism, and that's the island of Corfu, uh, and it's north of the Peloponnesus. It's in a much lesser visited region of Greece. Uh, Actium's on the coast, of the northwestern coast of Greece. Um, it was originally a religious sa- site and a small town. It's at the entrance to a large inland body of water, the Gulf of Artel or the Gulf of Ambracia, which makes it of uh, strategic strategic importance. But there wasn't really much of a city in the settlement there at the time. And what if you if you want to go there and climb up on the hill and look over 
yeah. the battle. There's a famous inscription and there's some still antiquities that are kind of remarkable, aren't there? Yeah, it's a great place. I highly recommend it. So the modern Greek town is called Preveza. It's a small city. Uh, north of the, the entrance to the Gulf is where Octavian built his camp, his headquarters, about five miles north mm -hmm. of the entrance to the, to the Gulf. Um, and after the, the battle, he set up a gigantic victory monument there. It really would have been spectacular. Uh, all we have are the ruins of it, uh, and there's a beautiful inscription or part of it uh, commemorating his his victory there. Uh, later on, it became a pretty important city in the Byzantine period. So there's some really nice ruins of the Byzantine yeah. city, late Roman city. Uh, well, now it wasn't there when we visited Victor long ago, but now there's a really nice museum there as well. Uh, after his victory, uh, Octavian. Uh, built a city at the site of his victory, which he modestly called Victory City, Nicopolis. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's very nice antiquities in this particular yeah. museum. So the battle itself, Anthony and Cleopatra have been camped there. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a healthy landscape. No. And uh, they have a problem because while there are Roman soldiers and Egyptian soldiers, they have kind of a binational command. And so... They're not a pure Egyptian force or a pure Roman force. And then you have this uh, expeditionary fleet coming to encounter them. And there's uh, Octavian. He's got this brilliant guy, Marcus Agrippa. So walk us through very quickly, Barry, what happens when the two fleets uh, meet and, and why, does, uh, why does Cleopatra lose? Okay. So... On paper, at any rate, Antony and Cleopatra should have won. They had a bigger fleet. Uh, their ships were uh, technically uh, better, more state-of-the-art. Uh, they had reinforced prows on their ships, which meant they would be stronger at head-to-head -head ramming. Um, and although most of their ships were five and uh, six sets of rowers per, per room, as we say, uh, they did have some a few giant ships that could be used to break through harbor defenses. So they should have done really well. And their problem was that because, as you said, this brilliant uh, uh, admiral that Octavian had, Marcus Agrippa, he cut off their supplies. He'd attacked their supply bases in the rear, at place after place after place. And they couldn't feed uh, their army. They were encamped uh, too long in the kind of unhealthy uh, lowlands uh, around Actium. Their soldiers were getting sick. Uh, and they were deserting. They, in fact, had a multi-ethnic polyglot army, uh, and they were deserting in droves to the enemy. So they had to leave. Uh, they, they couldn't compete against uh, Octavian and um, Agrippa, who played all their cards right. When they actually got to the time, so what they decided to do was to fight a breakout battle. Mm -hmm. uh, they would, if they possibly could, uh, they would try to uh, smash into the enemy's fleet and do a lot of damage to it. They knew that was a long shot, and probably the best they could do was to escape with as many ships as they could. Uh, they were in such bad straits, they actually had to burn some of their ships before the battle, a fair number of their ships, because they couldn't man them. They didn't have enough healthy crewmen that they could use to man these ships. They also had to abandon their land army, which they left at Actium. Pretty desperate situation. So they go down the coast of Greece and then they hop over across the Mediterranean and they get back at Alexandria. Yeah. And, but Actium is basically after that defeat, 
they're sort of on life support in Alexandria and they know what's hit there. They know what's coming. Right. And what was coming to them? Yeah. So what was coming to them was um, Octavian went eastward uh, and he uh, brought legions. He brought legions with them and gathered allies, all the cities. All the countries in the east, the Roman client kingdoms that had been on Antony's side, suddenly say, oops, we're now on Octavian's <laughs> side. Most famous example is King Herod, the infamous King Herod, uh, who was really quite um, a power unto his own right. And he went hat in hand, begging Octavian for forgiveness. And Octavian forgave him and he supplied Octavian's army in, in, a, in, a, in a big way. Um, Egypt was really very defensible. It's very hard to get to on land, and there are uh, big fortresses both on east and west. Uh, Antony had a fair amount of troops there. The trouble was uh, they could see which way the wind was blowing, and Cleopatra decides um, to make her try to make a separate peace with Octavian and ditch Antony. Uh, she cares more about her dynasty and her children. She has four children, three of them by Antony, one of them probably by Caesar. And she's looking to the future and the possibility that these kids will survive and inherit the throne that her dynasty's been on for 300 years. And she's willing to give up Anthony for that. And uh, she hardly has to tell the guys uh, manning these forts to uh, to surrender. So it's kind of a, in a weird, strange way. It's kind of a family affair because Anthony is the former brother-in-law of Octavian, married to Octavia. I, yeah. And, his great uncle Caesar is not, I mean, he has had this liaison with Cleopatra and his lieutenant, his main loyalist was Anthony. So it's a very incestuous uh, power play between these players, isn't it? It is utterly an incestuous. It is one of history's greatest soap operas. You know, you, yeah. When you read the details, you can hardly believe they're true. And you kind of think, surely they're making this stuff up, but they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we walk Barry through the, the the main players? So one thing I think our listeners and everybody who reads ancient history is dumbfounded. So when Caesar technically uh, starts the civil war by breaking a senatorial rule that he crosses the Rubicon, yeah, his grand nephew's only what fourteen, Octavian. He's just a little punk kid. <laughs> That's right. He's fourteen. And then yeah, and then. When Caesar's killed, he's what eight eighteen going on nineteen. That's he, right. Yeah. So he's still underestimated, and in Roman literature, as you remember, they refer to him as a young boy, or they, they right. yeah, he had, yeah. Habitually, he gets sick before battle. Right. What happened? How does this kid that's fourteen and then nineteen, and then there's these iterations of the civil war? Caesar's <laughs> fighting Pompey, and then Pompey's gone, and then the sons right. of Pompey. He has right. to get rid. He's got to get rid of the senatorial opposition, yeah. and then the pe the coalition turns on each other, Anthony, and through all of these iterations, he ends up at, what, 28 at Actium? He's still yeah. a punk. He's a mean, punk. How, how, he, do, how does he outsmart everybody that is so much more experienced? And he's read Machiavelli before Machiavelli. I mean, the guy is just incredibly cunning. And we've all known people like this, even in high school. We've known yeah. people who just, you know, focused on ambition. They just want to get ahead and they'll do whatever it takes. I think he was one of these guys. He just was incredibly smart. Uh, and he uh, ingratiated himself to Julius Caesar at a young age. 
he sat at Caesar's feet, especially in Spain. You know, he's soaking everything up from Caesar, learning from the guy, convinces Caesar that he's the one, he's the guy. Caesar changes his will and, you know, makes uh, Octavian uh, as, as his heir. Caesar sees something in this guy. He's got that X factor that makes means he can go the distance. So Cato, the younger Cato, kills himself, big yeah. revolutionary figure. Cicero yeah. is executed with his hands and his head nailed up yeah. on the hostage. Caesar is stabbed at Gath. I guess yeah. we can we can say that the myth of Cleopatra, however she died, the myth is she <laughs> was bitten by an asp. You yes. discuss that in the book. And yeah. then uh, we have Mark Anthony that kills himself and Octavian then dies in sleep at 77. That's right. <laughs> peaceful, peacefully. And he peacefully, if you believe Robert Graves and the rumors and Tacitus, he was poisoned by poisoned his wife. By, by his wife. I, yeah. No, that's a little too good a story for me. But yeah, God lives into his 70s. He's frustrated in his attempt to create a, a blood dynasty. You know, none, he only has one birth child, his daughter. Uh, by his first wife, uh, and she's uh, immensely fertile and has lots of kids, but none of them make it to adulthood. And in the end, he's forced to accept the son by his second wife, Livia, uh, his stepson, as his heir, uh, which doesn't make uh, Octavian very happy. He's then By then, he's Augustus. Uh, but yeah, he does live a really long time. He's one cunning, shrewd guy. When he goes to the Senate, he wears armor. He's not fooling around like Caesar. Uh, he's very careful. And this marks, a, in traditional classical periodization, I mean, some people have said maybe the, the dull destruction of Corinth and Carthage in 146, but most agree that 31 ends the Hellenistic period right. and starts uh, the Roman principate empire, so to speak. So yeah. he's going to be in charge now as the first citizen and gradually uh, absorb all of these extra legal powers and turn into, a, I guess we could say, not quite a benevolent dictator, but a, a dictator that wasn't as bad as what followed. And right. he does does this from 31 till he dies in his sleep and for 46, what, how many years? Yeah, 14, he dies in 14. 14, so he does it from 31 all the way to 14 and yeah. he's been he gets ill and everything but he survives all yeah. of these intrigues yeah. yeah and we wonder why uh virgil author of the great aeneid the Ecologues of georgics or horace's odes and right. we see we see one of the criticisms of them is they were toadish or they were obsequious mm -hmm. but we weren't alive when people really did owe Augustus for this huge, this four decades of peace and tranquility compared to what was before and what followed, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah I think people, yes, they, they did suck up to, to Augustus, but by the same token, I think they were just so relieved that the civil wars were over. I mean, it had been really awful, and, and now there's peace. Let's talk about this other guy that's it's one of these strange guys, Agrippa, that's brilliant. He's probably got as much innate talent as everybody, but he seems to be 100% loyal to Octavian, and he stays that way most of the time, and he's very gifted. Right. Is that, do you attribute a lot of the success at Actium and, and before and after to Agrippa? 
Yes, I do. I mean, he was, you know, a brilliant field general, absolutely brilliant. Uh, he was very inventive. Um, and um, he knew he knew a lot about strategy as well. Uh, I think that one of the reasons that uh, the team works is that Octavian is willing to defer to Agrippa when necessary and to let it be known that he deferred to Agrippa. Our sources tell us, for instance, that on the eve of the Battle of Actium, Octavian said, we should let Antony and Cleopatra sail away. That's our best hope. Uh, and then we'll mop up afterwards. And Agrippa says, no, boss, that's a terrible idea. We should fight a battle. Um, and uh, Octavian says, yeah, that's you're right. I guess so. I think it's amazing that this is in the sources. And uh, we think that this comes from Octavian's, uh, Augustus's memoirs. That, that he writes. So Octavian, of course, becomes Augustus, takes that name. Uh, he wrote memoirs which haven't survived, but we have sources that say, well, I read Augustus's yeah. memoirs, so I got this from. The fact that Augustus lets the story be known, I think, really speaks a lot about the guy and one of the reasons he was so successful. He had this, this, this political sense of what he could and couldn't do. He knew his own limitations, but he also knew who he was dealing with, and he knew that Agrippa wasn't going to turn around and then take power from him. His great uncle is not a player because he's uh, he's been dead, right? Uh, Forty three all the way to thirty one, so he's been right. dead twelve yeah. years. But in what way did Octavian differ from his great uncle? I mean, he didn't have the military genius of a Caesar, right? But and Caesar lived in a much more, I think, a much more dangerous and troubled. He was a fish that swam in more dangerous waters in some ways, but he obviously had gifts that Caesar didn't have. I didn't. He didn't have the Clementia Caesaris that Caesar did. No. Is that yeah? The naivete I mean, is that what it, what it what that Caesar suffered from? That his magnanimity he thought would always win people over. Uh, a naivete and an arrogance. I think yeah, I mean, yeah. Caesar was a patrician. He came from the bluest of blue blood. Uh, Octavian didn't. Octavian was a Roman noble only by virtue of his mother's mother. Uh, to real, his father was kind of a, a real second-rate guy. Like, you know, he would be like a provincial banker from our point of view, or someone who'd made a lot of money selling cars or something like that. Someone like Antony just has contempt for Octavian, and has, his speeches are full of the snobby invective. The guy's ancestor was a baker. Uh, a money changer. The family came from Africa, he says. You know, and I think this represents what a lot of the nobility thought of Octavian. Who is this guy who thinks he, he's a patrician? I mean, Caesar dies and he illegally uh, get, makes uh, posthumously adopts Octavian. There's no such thing as posthumous adoption in Roman law. This is, this is nonsense. And Octavian knows it. And as soon as he gets power, he makes the assemblies pass a law saying he's legally adopted. He calls himself Gaius Julius Caesar. We call him Octavian, but he never did. He called himself yeah. Gaius Julius Caesar. In fact, he was insulted if anyone called him Octavian, which legally that would have been his name, Caesar Octavianus. And I think a lot of Romans, especially nobles, would say, who does he think he is? And then he marries, he marries, you don't get any higher on the pecking order than marrying Livia Drusilla. This is it. This is yeah. as high as the Roman nobility goes. Um, it's a little bit like Meghan Markle marrying to the British royal family. You know, it's not totally off that analogy, 
you know, what people think, who, who do these people think they are? And, you know, Octavian's a little bit like that from the point of view of the nobility. I don't think from the point of view of, of ordinary Romans. Um, but he is one shrewd guy. Just to be and, how, and so the other two, and we'll start with Cleopatra. We have some later representations of us, and to be frank, she she doesn't seem so stunning. But what, no. what what is it about her that everybody's you know when you say even today she's a Cleopatra? What what was the allure that or the unknown quantity about her that made her so seductive or so sensuous or so adroit in manipulating men? I mean, she she manipulated a lot of very capable men, Caesar <laughs> and. Uh, but not Octavian, but uh, she did. No. She did seduce Anthony and C uh, his great uncle and other people right. as well. So what was it about her? What was her talent? You know, Plutarch's. Well, first of all, she was phenomenally intelligent and ambitious. I mean, she was as smart as they come and as shrewd as they come. Um, you know, she had known how to survive in a brutal family. I mean. Uh, always in the Macedonian monarchy, uh, the throne was getting to the throne as a blood sport. And, you know, her sister wanted to kill her. She probably arranged for her sister to be killed and at least for one of her brothers to be killed. She fought the other one in, in a war. Uh, Plutarch said she just was amazingly seductive and charming, intelligent. She knew how to, to, uh, manipulate people. She was a gifted linguist. She spoke something like seven languages and, um, she just had this appeal. We don't really know what she looked like. I mean, she would put her image out in different ways for different um, different audiences. I mean, the coins make her look downright ugly, uh, but she wants to look masculine on the coin. She wants to look like her father. Um, the sculpt, the Greco-Roman sculpture makes her look kind of attractive. And the Egyptian relief sculpture makes her look like a typical Egyptian queen. So yeah. we don't really know. But yeah, the, it, Plutarch says it's not, it's less her physical appearance than her charms and her seductiveness. I know it's controversial given the post-Martin Bernal, who was a former colleague of yours, who wrote right. Black Athena. But right. ostensibly, she's Greek, or I should say Macedonian. She's a direct right. descendant of the Ptolemaic line right. that goes right. all the way back yeah. to... Right. successor uh, general of Alexander the Great. Is that is it fair to say that people of the time felt that she was Greek and not native Egyptian? Well, it's a really interesting question. She's definitely a descendant, a direct descendant of Ptolemy. There's at least one Persian in her family tree. Uh, and there may be two Egyptians. I mean, there's some reason to think that her mother came from a family of Egyptian priests and they had maybe married into uh, the Ptolemies as well. So she was maybe part Egyptian, maybe her grandmother as well. That's a little iffier. Uh, she certainly, Greek was her native language. I mean, she certainly was Greek. Uh, and, you know, she presided over a Greek-speaking court. She maybe was part Egyptian. Octavian certainly always portrays her as Egyptian, but he's not doing that because he's trying to be politically correct. Just the opposite. He's doing that because he tries to insult her and say, "You're not Greek. You're Egyptian. We're fighting. We're fighting Egyptian." How about we have this strange view of Mark Anthony in popular literature, film, sort of a big blustery guy, macho man, drinks, right. womanizes, 
right. uh, not too bright. We get a little bit of that from Plutarch's life of Anthony. Right. Right. And uh, we have, he becomes a villain, especially we have the famous Philippics of Cicero. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, to what degree is that stereotype accurate? that he was a slave to his appetites or he became a slave. But at some point he was, I mean, he was a master rhetorician, wasn't he? And he was a loyal uh, tribune and, and lieutenant of Caesar in those really hard years when Caesar was in Gaul. I mean, he was a, he was, you know, he's a very experienced soldier uh, and he has some real wins to his credit, particularly the battle of Philippi. Uh, where he defeats uh, Brutus and, and Cassius. Cassius is a really good soldier, so he has to get a lot of credit uh, for that. Um, and he is, a, as you say, a master rhetorician. And the other thing that he does that's really impressive is he basically, uh, he negotiates Rome's diplomatic settlement in the East. You know, he lines up all these client kings who are guarding the Eastern marches of the Roman Empire and do a pretty good job. Uh, he also handles the crisis when the Parthians invade, uh, they conquer Syria and Judea, uh, and he's got a real problem on his hands, and he deals with that very well. He has a very talented lieutenant, Sosius, who he sends to uh, deal with that problem. Um, so he's not simply just a hard-drinking, you know, hell fellow, well-met. He's just not very smart. Um, he's got some real skills. But uh, that being said, he's no match in the cunning department for Octavian, no match for Cleopatra, and he's no match as a commander with Agrippa. He's really very good, but he has to be great, and that's his problem. He's not, he's not good enough uh, to match with yeah. to match them. Sadly, one of the things he's best known for as a general is leading successful retreats. It's not really what you want. <laughs> One of the things, uh, it's hard. You know, we think that because Actium is in 31 and, and compared to, oh, Cani in 2016 or Zama 2002 or Marathon 490 or Salamis or Thermopylae. Yeah. But we actually don't have a lot of good firsthand sources. So as a historian you're sort of stuck between Livy and Tacitus and you rely on Plutarch's life of Anthony that can and cannot incorporate all of that was written about, I guess, 100 AD. Yeah. And then you have a little bit, I suppose, in Diodorus and, and Valeus and things, but it was it's kind of harder to write about Actium, isn't it, than yeah. even earlier battles, given the source yeah. problem. Yeah, really big source problem, because also we're just getting it from uh, it's mostly Augustus's point of view, Octavian's point of view. Very little has survived from Antony or Cleopatra's point of view. But we've got uh, we've got a lot of coins, and they're very helpful. Uh, mm -hmm. The information we get from coins, and also our friend Bill Murray uh, and Costa Zakos did this terrific work at the Victory Monument at, at Actium. Uh, Octavian put up prows from the ships that Antony had, and we learn a lot about the ships and what Antony's got in his um um you know got on his side we learned a lot about what the ships what his strategy was what he could have done if anthony had been caesar he would have taken that fleet and he would have invaded italy he had the real possibility of breaking through a heavily fortified place like Indesium. that's what the point of the fleet was there's no way caesar would have sat in 
uh, on the west coast of Greece and waited for the enemy to come. And I think the real problem with Anthony um, is he's not enough of a risk taker. Uh, he's lost whatever capacity he might ever have had uh, to take a risk, perhaps because uh, he had his head handed to him in his attempted invasion of the Parthian Empire, where he goes ahead of his siege train and uh, the enemy just comes and destroys his siege train behind him and cuts up his logistics so he's stuck. Uh, that, I think, might have made him overly risk averse uh, in the Actium War. And so he's waiting for the enemy to come. And the enemy comes good and hard and really gives it to him. So yeah. you, you talked about that in Masters and Commanders. And that really, I think we underestimate Keller Toss or what the Romans called quickness. Because yeah. when, when Caesar consolidates power, every time there was an uprising, Winnie Witty Wiki is off to yeah. the Pontus. He's down yeah. to where Cato is. He's into Spain yeah. at the very moment's notice. And, and that trait, we see with Alexander the Great as well. Quick, quick, quick. Napoleon, you know, that famous aphorism, gentlemen, if you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna. In other words, <laughs> you never dawdle. And that seems to be a, a very important trait that yeah. I don't I don't even know if uh, Octavian had it. Gr Agrippa did, I think. Uh, Agrippa did. I mean, you know, we don't want to totally underestimate Octavian. We don't but, know who came up with the strategy. Uh, that uh, they followed at at Actium. I'd like to think that Octavian learned that from his great uncle Caesar, that if you want to win a war, you just can't sit and wait for the enemy to come. You just got to go out and take some risks. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's tremendously important. And I, I think that more than anything else is why Antony lost. And we don't know if it's because he lost his nerve or because Cleopatra, who controlled the purse strings, she financed the Navy. She paid for it, and her architects built it. We don't know if she's just saying, no, there's no way we're invading Italy, or if he was stuck. He just can't invade Italy because he's got the Egyptian queen with him. That's not going to go over politically. It'd be a very tough sell, though a possible sell. Yeah. Uh, and he can't get rid of her because she won't go. Mm -hmm. She said, if I go, the money goes too. <laughs> a lot of his allies wanted him to get rid of her, but she doesn't trust him. She knows that if she goes back to Egypt, Octavian's going to come in and say, hey, want to remarry my sister who you just divorced? We can make peace again. That's what's going to happen. That's what I think. Why don't we just take a, a 10 minute detour or five yeah. minute or three minute on the, the topic of, you know, we, we talk about Actium and ancient sea battles. Right. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation or mis, uh, I don't know what, uh, misconceptions about ancient sea battles. So these ships are oared vessels and, they're yeah. blown, and they have rams, but they also yeah. have various, the corvus, or they have various uh, siege craft, so to speak, and they have some artillery. But how in this battle... Do they power sail where, when she's breaking out? Are they rowing and uh, on? Can you do that in the ancient world? How, just explain how one side beats yeah. the other when they're at this in the Gulf yeah. at Actium. So in a naval battle in the ancient world, normally you want to make your ships light. You take the masts down, they're portable, they're removable, and you take the sails off. It's going to be just powered by rowing, by manpower, not by wind. What's unusual about Actium is that Antony and Cleopatra have their masts and their sails on their ship, ready to go. 
Uh, and the reason for that is they're waiting for the north wind to blow up, which it does regularly every afternoon. And that will allow them to speed southward and to escape. It also, however, makes it very difficult for them to ram because their ships are heavy. So, you know, in the beginning, uh, Antony wants to ram the enemy. But Agrippa, who knows what Antony's plan is, because one of Antony's top generals had defected to Agrippa at the last minute, defected to Octavian Agrippa. Uh, Agrippa waits a nautical mile away. His, his line of ships, the ships are lined up opposite each other, the fleets are. Uh, Agrippa's a nautical mile away. That means that Antony's men have got to row hard over a nautical mile, so a little more than a regular mile, uh, in order to get to the enemy's fleet. By the time they're there, they're pretty tired. It's really hard to um, to ram effectively after uh, after that when you're schlepping uh, the masts and the sails on your ships and they're so heavy. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. No. Uh, getting back to the theme of your book that this changed attitudes. We today, oh. at least until recently, we've we're sort of northwestern Eurocentric, so we right. look at. Northern Europe, and we see France and Germany and, and the Low Countries and Scandinavia as this economic juggernaut, and then Southern Europe and Eastern Europe and Asia less developed. But that was just the opposite in the ancient world. And I think maybe you could argue that Northwestern Europe really didn't take off until the discovery of the New World. They had Atlantic ports, so they had advantages to get to. Uh, go around the uh, Cape of Good Hope to get to China, but also um, they they had access to the New World's riches, and that helped. And then, in addition, they were a long way from the Ottoman Empire, which the Eastern yeah. Europeans kind of saved them. And yeah. I don't know if I don't want to get into controversial territory, but maybe the Protestant Reformation uh, put a little bit more emphasis on capitalism and yeah. uh, going to heaven by being wealthy. But what I'm getting at is we don't really appreciate sometimes that that was just the opposite in the ancient world, that Egypt and Asia Minor and uh, the, near, the Near East were where the money was and not exactly. so much northern. The status of these countries I just mentioned, the EU powerhouses was pretty tribal and backward at this time, wasn't it? Yeah, they were the underdeveloped world. And there's no question that Antony wanted the East because that's where the money was. Uh, and that's where the cities were. So it was easier to collect taxes. Um, Antony has, you know, an endless amount of money to pay for his his fleet and to pay his, not endless, there are some money problems, but it's got a lot of money. It doesn't have to raise taxes uh, for, for this battle. Octavian has to raise taxes in Italy and there's huge opposition, there are riots. There's violence because the taxes he has to raise to pay for his fleet and to finance this war. Um, the war is really unpopular. It's so unpopular that he has to bring the whole Roman Senate with him. You don't usually bring the Senate with you if you're going after war. And the reason he does that is he thinks they're going to defect to Antony if he leaves them behind. So it's really a contrast. And, and is the East wealthier because, A, they're closer to the wealth and the trade routes to China and India, and B, they've had this sort of head start with the Greek city-states and Asia Minor and, and for 500 years while Italy is a, an agrarian republic, and they've got sophisticated science and that tradition 
is so rich, much richer. Is that, is that why this area is so coveted by Rome, that it that yes. explains I mean, its wealth? That, that explains a lot of its wealth. In the case of Egypt, there's the additional factor of the Nile and the regular annual flooding of the Nile. So this is just, you know, it's the Midwest. It's this fabulous farmland. Uh, and Egypt's got it. We think of Egypt as a desert nowadays, but in antiquity, it was anything but. So it's just very wealthy. And they've collected all this treasure. Um, one of the reasons that one of things prizes for Octavian and Actium is Cleopatra's got a lot of her treasure with her. She doesn't dare leave it behind in Egypt. Mm. He really wants that treasure. And when she leaves, she got, has the treasure on her ships. So I think Octavian, in a sense, feels great. I've won the battle. I have a bunch of ships and I have all these soldiers who I now have to feed and I have to provide land for in Italy or they'll riot. Um, so it's a, not entirely a decisive victory. So when this the battle is over and yeah. then the mop-up is over, then Egypt becomes the imperial province of the emperor, his private yeah. purse. Yeah. And that's yeah. because of the wealth coming in from wheat and and is shipped into Rome. I mean, people without they do they get to the point very quickly without Egyptian wheat, they're in bad shape, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Remember, one of the reasons the Romans had not uh, annexed Egypt is the Senate was jealous. They didn't want any one Roman general to get the credit of annexing Egypt and to build up all the clients that he would have had he annexed Egypt. So Egypt, in a way, survives in independence, mainly because Rome, the Romans are fighting each other. Um, and uh, when Antony gets Egypt with Cleopatra, this is a major coup. You know, this guy, he's got he's got the the golden goose here that really scares Octavian. That, that it's kind of it's kind of like what Ukraine is to Russia, isn't it? It's this great it basket, kind of like, and it's the the one thing they want to get the hold of. About that's all right. Else. Yeah, yeah. And so they get Egypt. It becomes after the battle. It becomes an imperial province, and then for the next two centuries, we we get sort of, because of this battle, we have, I guess we could call it the first globalization. So yeah. then Roman, as the empire expands, I guess you could argue after the death of Augustus, expands very little according to his will, but here and there. Mm -hmm. And then within the confines of, I guess it's, we could say, I don't know, a million square miles, 70 million people from Britain, mm -hmm all the way to the Euphrates and maybe from the Danube and the Rhine all the way to the Atlas Mountains. You got this yeah. huge area after Actium and then, you know, you have the Neronian mess, but then we have the five good emperors and, and we have a, because of Augustus's legacy, you have a kind of a veneer of sameness through all these places, right? That's part of the legacy in the East yeah. And in, in a little bit northern, there's fora, there's habeas corpus, there's aqueducts, there's a modicum yeah. of uniformity and things really? tend to be pretty yes. good. Yeah. And that's um, all because of the end of the cessation, the cessation of this inner fighting and then the establishment of a uniform system that, that yes. follows from Actium. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are lots of rebellions, and the Romans have a pretty small army to try to govern 70 million people, only about 300,000 uh, men in the army. But uh, on the whole, yeah, it is a period of several centuries of relative peace and relative prosperity. It's a pretty great achievement. Yeah. I, 
when you finish, you know, when you talk about, um, and everybody hears, you know, this is the war that made the Roman Empire, if I can see. So what's your own feelings that I know you're a Philhellene mm-hmm. and uh, you, you emphasize more in Greek than Rome, but all classicists have to, to be proficient right. in both cultures and language. So do you think that this was a fortuitous idea or a fortuitous event that Rome remained Latinized and it, it would incorporate Northwestern Europe and Roman Catholicism and et cetera, et cetera? Or do you have, there are parts of you that wished that there was an orthodox uh, future for the entire empire <laughs> and what came, became Constantinople in the fourth century was sort of a, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that had they won Actium, what we know as the Byzantine empire would have been earlier. That's and right. B- B- so yeah. there would have been a proto Byzantine empire rather than a Western empire. Yeah. Well, uh, I think with Cleopatra in charge, uh, there would have been certain things that would have been just fabulous about this early Byzantine Empire. But the thing, as you know, about uh, about the West is the emphasis on freedom. And, you know, freedom survives in the West partly through Roman failure, partly because the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West leaves space for freedom to come back after it suffers quite a bit in the in the Roman Empire. Would that have happened if there had been, you know, Byzantium before Byzantium? I don't know. That would have been the one that would have certainly been one thing that would have been lost. So um we kind I of can't see that a little I'm, bit. Yeah. Maybe we see a little bit in that second and failed but very ambitious effort of Justinian and Belisarius. Yeah. To kind of recoup an entirely Greek, and it, I guess what you're saying is, had Actium bit turned out differently, we could see sort of a proto-Belisarius and Justinian because they did they did get into Italy and they did and and uh, there's a lot of Byzantine churches at Ravenna and they had a pocket there for four or five hundred years in Sicily yeah. and they conquered North Africa again until Islam came along, but. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a very, it, it is a different, we have kind of, you know, Byzantine is a pejorative word in our modern lexicon, but in fact, when you look at the achievement of a thousand years beyond the West, there had to be something there because they lived in a pretty rough neighborhood themselves. Yeah. And, you know, our friends in Greece would be very happy with, you know, more successful <laughs> orthodoxy. And, um, you know, uh, Russia, for uh, its, despite its current flaws as a civilization that's achieved a lot, and they were deeply imprinted uh, by uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. So, uh, you know, it's it's had a lot of influence and achieved greatness. I can remember uh, being in my apartment on May 29th, 1978, and somebody knocking on the door and saying, it's Black Tuesday, you always, <laughs> can you give a donation to the church? And then I said, well, explain what this day means to you. And said, well, the marbleized emperor was marbleized and taken off by the archangels right out of uh, Santa Sophia. And he's going to come back. Uh, and he almost came back in 1921 and 22 when we were, you know, so many wow. miles outside. Wow. And we wow, had the, wow. the Megala idea, the idea that yeah. the Asia Minor, wow. Alexandria, that would be a, another Greek late. And then yeah. I remember her saying to me, 
because it was a very anti-American period, as you remember, with yes. the start of uh, Passock yeah. was in control and had been the coups uh, four or five years earlier. Uh, the coup had ended, I should say, the, the junta. And she said something I'll never forget. She said, well, you know, you are all wealthy because for years we were enslaved fighting the Turk. And everybody in the Balkans kept the Turk at bay and they only got to Vienna. But if they had, if we hadn't have been here. And so there is a sense to even today that Eastern Europe, but especially the Greek speaking Balkans and the Orthodox religion have played a role that's underappreciated in the West, I think. I think they have a point. Yeah. And it's not just a chip on their shoulder, huh? It's not just a chip on their shoulder. It yeah. is underappreciated in the West. And they... It's a very developed uh, theory and philosophy, because as I re remember talking to a lot of my Greek friends, they said, well, you, you were wealthy because France and Spain and the Netherlands and Britain, uh, you all had ports on the Atlantic Ocean. and We were bottled up. And we were fighting Turkey, and the and we allowed you when you couldn't get your to China and India. You had sea craft, so yes, you had sails, and you went to, you know, you had all the silver and gold of Mexico and South America, et cetera, et cetera. But we put the cork in the Ottoman bottle for you while you did that, and then we never advanced because we were trapped in the Mediterranean with oared vessels while you were experimenting with galleons and everything. That's it's a very developed yeah. theory about how, how different uh, the world would, would have been. Let me ask, uh, Barry, I think yeah. everybody, because you've written this series, it's an incredible series of books, 10 or 12 in the last 13 years. What are you mm -hmm. working on now? So I'm um, writing a book called Rebels. It's about uh, Jewish revolts against Rome. Um, against the, Rome? <laughs> against Rome in the first two centuries, yeah. Is it, are you going to do a what would have happened had they won? Syria again scenario if the if the rebellions had had been successful. I'm going to do a what if what would have happened if they had won and what would have happened if they hadn't rebelled. Had they? Are you? Th I know it's earlier in your research. Had they not rebelled, or had they won, there wouldn't have been a Jewish diaspora as we know it in throughout Europe, or not. Well, there already was a Jewish diaspora. Yes. I mean, uh, quote unquote Babylon, southern yes. Iraq yeah. was huge. Uh, Jewish community. And of course, there's big Jewish diaspora in, in um, Egypt, Alexandria, and in Antioch, and some in in Rome. Um, they, I don't think they could have won without the help of of the Persians, without the help of of Parthia. And so, to imagine them winning is to imagine Parthia coming back in a big way uh, in, in what was the Roman Empire. Do you think had they either not rebelled or had they won the status of Jewishness, if I could use that term, would it be different today? Definitely. I mean, and there there's a lot of speculation, but uh, there's certainly scholars, including Israeli scholars, who say, you know, Herod had it right. The Romans weren't that bad. Uh, the Jews simply should have just learned to live under the Romans. Um, and then the question is, well, would the Jews then have survived or would they have ended up like the Phoenicians? You know, um, they didn't rebel. They lived under the Romans. But Phoenicians, not so many Phoenicians around uh, around today. And people are descended from the Phoenicians, of course, but um, not uh, not a Phoenician state or anything like that. It, it's, it's fascinating how many people uh, they're 
modern status in the world or their modern 20th century, 21st century has something to do with their ancient relationship with Rome. I know that Absolutely. that whole German tradition of kind of scary nihilist tradition of uh, Hegel or Nietzsche or Oswald Spengler, they all talk about Germany was never uh, Mongolized. It was always pristine. It was beyond the Danube. It was beyond the Rome. It was a blood and soil Tacitus, yeah. that book, right. I think, yeah. the most dangerous book. It was a really good yes. book. I reviewed that. That right. Germans today feel they were not part of the Roman Empire, and that was a good thing because right. they, because you could tell a German by his superficial appearance in a way you couldn't tell a Roman. A Roman, and that 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 really was a strong. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but that was a contributing factor philosophically, I guess, to what became National Socialism. Yeah, well, they certainly used that idea. Uh, the Germans, you know, had probably the most successful rebellion against the uh, the Romans. Uh, the Germans under Arminius, when they defeat the Romans in the Tudorburgo Woods, that's that's really one of the most important battles in history. And, and you mentioned freedom, and that's a German word, isn't it? Freiheit and, Freiheit, and yes. on, on, unlike libertas, which I guess is the ability to have a a sense of freedom within a constitutional system or within a sophisticated government, unlike a natural freedom. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. there, there, there are many different peoples in antiquity who had notions of freedom. I mean, the Greeks did, uh, the Jews did, but you also have to have a certain amount of power to make it to make yeah. it work. We have about four or five minutes, Barry, very quickly. Yeah. So let me just let our uh, listeners and viewers get some ideas. So you get these ideas about this these books about antiquity, yeah. and what's your modus operandi? You read secondary sources first, and then you go into primary, and then you travel to the play. How, walk us through it a little bit. Yeah, well, I try to start with the primary sources, but pretty quickly you have to get into the secondary sources yeah. Yeah. Um, because you have to interpret them. And those uh, I are mostly in Latin and Greek, aren't they? Almost they're, always, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're mostly in the when you in say Latin. primary, you're talking everything from literature to primarily history, but also yeah. epigraphic inscriptions or definitely. Yeah, yeah. you have to use inscriptions, yeah. uh papyrus, uh coins are really pretty important yeah. as well. And there's material evidence, archaeological evidence, and part of that, part of what you have to do is you actually have to go to the places. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty much impossible to do this. So so in June, for instance, I was in Israel. I'd been there before, but this time I went with some very specific goals in mind of looking at sites and museums that were important for these revolts. Um, and you know, there's just really a lot there. There's yeah. a lot. I think I, I was there for 16 days. It's a it's a and that's a booming, it's a booming economy now. And it's it's a I've never quite I had been there twice before, but I'd never seen that level of economic prosperity. Oh, it's amazing. I lived in Tel Aviv in the 1980s, and I felt like Rip Van Winkle. I mean, I've been yeah. back since, but Tel Aviv is a totally different place than it yeah, was. Yeah, it is. And some of these places you go aren't so easy to get to, are they? Even if the ones that are in Europe? Uh, no, they're not always e they're not always easy to get to. Yes. You know? <laughs> when I was younger, I would always rent my own car as to go there. Nowadays, I think it may be safer for me to have drivers. Yeah, uh, I think yeah, so. The beaten path, absolutely. You've been a lot more successful than I have going to ancient places because I think 
I had a torn ureter with a kidney stone in Athens and, and I had malaria in Egypt and I had a ruptured appendix in Libya. And I kind of, I kind of learned my lesson about what uh, you're talk, sure talking you're, about. You've given a lot for the team. What can I say? <laughs> or a lot to my self-indulgence. Uh, so we're almost, we're out, uh, we're over Barry. And uh, thank you very much. The book is The War That Made the Roman Empire, Anthony Cleopatra and Octavian at Actium, and uh, Barry's working on another one on rebels that we we hope to have him back. And with that, thank you very much for coming and thank everybody for listening to another Hoover uh, Institution book review. Thank you. Thank you. Great.